And this looks like it will be our last message on the book of Revelation. We started a year ago in May. We took a brief hiatus, which means a spell. And uh, we laid out of the book uh, late last summer. But if my calculations are correct, this is the 23rd message in the book of Revelation. And I want us to look at the last two verses as we close out this great book, the last book of God's holy word. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly or speedily. It does not necessarily mean I am coming immediately. It refers to the time or sequence of events. Once he comes, when I come, everything will fall very quickly. Amen. Even so, John wrote, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen. I think it is fitting that as we come to the end of God's sacred canon, the end of the last book of God's revelation, he's not writing anymore. As we come to the end of the book of the revelation, the apocalypse, which reveals the coming of Christ, he who testifies, Jesus, we've heard the bride say, come. We've heard those who hear say, come. Now he who has testified to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. And John's response resonating in his heart is even so, come Lord Jesus. And then finally a benediction of the full grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, amen. And God's saga of centuries is completed. The book is done. The writing is complete. The last word, I'm coming. One of the very first words in all of the scripture is God says, I am going to send a seed. You remember in Genesis 3, when God said after the fall that uh, the seed of the woman uh, will be bruised by the serpent and the seed of the woman will then bruise the serpent. And so the very, one of the very first promises in all of the Bible has to do with the fact that God is going to send his son. The first time to die on a cross in which Satan or the serpent, as it were, bruises his heel. But the second time when he comes in judgment, he comes to crush the head of the serpent and deliver us once and for all from all evil and from the hand of Satan. Surely, Jesus says, I come speedily. So we must, we must presume from both the opening and the ending of this book of Scripture that in time, God's presence among men is to lead to man's presence among God for all eternity. And that's where we conclude the book, Man with God. Now go back to one little verse that leads us to this conclusion in chapter 21, verse 22. 
I saw no temple in heaven. I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple, are the place where God dwells their God. We no longer need a temple. The other day I told Shirley I had on my mind that I was hungry for spaghetti. Do you ever get a hankering for something like that? And you know, uh, when you're hungry for spaghetti, the finest hamburger, the finest steak will not satisfy you. Have you tried that? I mean, it just doesn't make any difference. The finest, delicious, rich, frozen, homemade peach ice cream cannot satisfy your hunger if you're hungry for spaghetti. The juiciest hamburger uh, laced with a half-inch thick a Vidalia onion and a fresh tomato from John's Island in, in South Carolina and Hellman's light mayonnaise and a layer of fresh romaine lettuce on a toasted bun lightly skimmed with butter cannot satisfy your hunger if you are hungry for spaghetti. Now what is even worse than that is when you go foraging around the house and you don't know what it is you're hungry for and you try pickles and then you try potato chips and then you try Fritos and then you try chocolate pie and then you try a cup of tea and then you try an avocado and then you try an artichoke and then you try a pizza and then you try Maalox. You see, when you don't know what it is you're looking for, nothing can satisfy your hunger. As we close out this book, I am intensely reminded of this truth that I would want to drive home to you today. God desires to be with you. The psalmist said, as the deer panteth after the water brook, so my heart pants after you, God. Augustine said that... Uh, Man was made for God and will find no rest or peace, depending on how you translate the word, until he finds his rest in God. And Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, said, there is a hole, a vacuum in the heart of man which cannot be filled but by God. This inability to satisfy man's basic hunger, money will not do it. If you got a $100,000 raise tomorrow in four years, you will want more. Sex cannot do it. If you had a harem of 200 women, or if you women had a harem of 300 men, it would bring no satisfaction you're made for God. Liquor can never satisfy. Drugs can never satisfy. A large house can never satisfy. Only God can actually bring contentment and satisfaction because you were made for Him and He desires to be with you. And you cannot fill that hunger for God with anything else. 
And as the book of Revelation closes and Jesus says, even so, I am coming quickly. He is reminding us that the purpose of everything we have read in the Bible is that we might be with God for eternity and there resting in God. We don't need anything else but Him. He is fully adequate and He is fully enough. There are several expressions of this throughout the Bible and I'm going to take you on a survey rather than do, try to do an exposition of two verses. Read with me Psalm 90. Just start working back in your Bible. Psalm 90 and verse 1. And notice the cry of the psalmist. Notice God's design for eternity. Verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. From generation to generation to generation. The God who was in the beginning has been our dwelling place. We ask the question, where does God live? And how can I be in the presence of God? The psalmist expresses that question with an affirmation. Oh God, you are eternal. You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Some of you have had family who spent five generations in Winston-Salem. And you would say, Winston-Salem, you have been our dwelling place from generation to generation. The psalmist goes back to eternity past when he says in verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And God has been our abode where we lived from time past and generation to generation. Now that's a, a psalm of Moses, but go back to Psalm 27 and look at the expression of David in Psalm 27. When the psalmist says in verse 4 of Psalm 27, one thing I have desired of the Lord. Now I've always had a little problem with this psalm. When he says, one thing I want from you, and then he names three things. <laughs> he sees them as a total. He sees them as a whole. Lord, one thing have I desired of you. You know, if you've got a goal in life, here's, here's your goal. That will I seek. Number one, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord. To David, that was the tabernacle all the days of my life. Secondly, one thing I desire is to inquire in your temple. Oh, I'd love to have a temple where I could come and hear you speak. And third, in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. I want to dwell. I want to behold the beauty. I want to inquire in his temple where I can hide and be safe. That is the aspiration of my heart. And the older I get, the more refined that aspiration becomes. What I want is to dwell in the house all the days of my life. Behold the beauty of God alone. Inquire in His temple a place where I can hide in a time of trouble. I think heaven 
is home because it is the completion of the aspirations of David the psalmist. And there is no temple in heaven because the Lord himself is in heaven. And there needs to be no door or wall going from the inner court. Do you remember the temple? There's the outer court, then the inner court where the priests gathered. There's the holy place where they washed. There's the holy uh, of holies and the holiest of all. And each was covered by a veil or a wall or a separation. But in heaven, which is the true reality of which the earthly tabernacle and temple are only symbols pointing to the reality, in heaven there is no temple there because God is the temple. And what the psalmist longed for is now received. I can dwell in heaven with the Lord all the days of eternity. I can behold his beauty. I can inquire in his temple, which is a place of eternal refuge. Now, I'd like to show you the times throughout the Bible, five they are, I believe, in which God sought to manifest his dwelling place among us. And then will you join me in, in just reaching out to the Father and saying, Lord, that's where I am. I want all of you now, as much of you as I can have, because there you will have all of me in heaven. The first time God sought to manifest his dwelling place to man and meet with man is in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. Now go on back to it. Here God says, I want to know you. I want to walk with you. I want to satisfy you and bring contentment. Chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. And he commanded the man of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat, you shall surely die. God put man in the garden. And while there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and there were many trees to provide fruit, the most important thing in that garden is found in chapter 3 and verse 8. After man had sinned, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. In the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves, now underline this, from the presence of the Lord God among the trees. God first sought to manifest his dwelling place by creating a garden in which he put man so that man could have what he needed. Yes, he could have the trees and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but most importantly, there in that garden was the what? Was the presence of the Lord. And in some slight minuscule way, representative of what heaven will be like, man was in the presence of God until sin entered and no sin can stay in the presence of God. And so in chapter, 20, chapter 3, verse 22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. 
Now lest he put out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. The Lord God sent him out of the garden, out of the presence of the Lord. But God's heart longed to be with Adam, longed to be with Eve. But because of sin, they were driven from the dwelling place, the manifestation place of the presence of the Lord. So the Garden of Eden is the first of God's five attempts to manifest His presence to us. Secondly, go to Exodus 25. And here's the wonderful story of what is called the tabernacle of His presence. In Exodus chapter 25, God told Moses, For the children of Israel in the wilderness, having been delivered from Egypt, He said in chapter 25, verse 8, let the people make me a sanctuary. Now look at this, that I may dwell among them. Isn't that a beautiful thing? God said, all right, Adam and Eve sinned, but I'm going to pick a race of people and I'm going to demonstrate my grace. Now I want you to build a sanctuary for me. I want you to build a tabernacle which you can move from place to place and there I want to dwell among you. Now, as we look at the tabernacle, we see the fullest expression of God showing us his presence. The first thing is, please note this, that God's heaven or God's tabernacle or God's place of abode is a place where he sought to dwell among us. He said, I want you to build a tabernacle that I may dwell in the midst of this obstinate, sinful, willful, rebellious people. I will dwell among you. Today, God dwells among us. Wherever two or three are gathered in his name, we have the absolute assurance of his sweet and holy presence, don't we? Isn't that a wonderful thing? Have you ever been, I love private devotions. I love to get alone with God. But there's something about being with two or three Christians that just manifest the place. God said, I want to dwell among you. It manifests the presence of the Lord. But that's not all. Notice another reason for the tabernacle. In chapter 25 and verse 19, he said, make one cherub at the end of the mercy seat and the other cherub... This is an image of God's holy angels, which we've seen in the book of Revelation. You shall make the cherubim, plural, at the two ends of it, of one piece with a mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. And you shall put the mercy seat, this is in the tabernacle, on top of the ark, and in the ark, you shall put the testimony that I will give you, the Ten Commandments. And there, verse 22, I will what, class? Look at how this fits together. I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony of all things which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. So now we have a second purpose for the tabernacle. God says, I want to dwell among you. I, I want to dwell with you. And I want to speak with you. 
I love to hear God speak. Sometimes it may not be as clear as others. Sometimes, remember, God wants to hear from us. I will speak with you there in that holy place. He wants to dwell among. He wants to meet with us and speak with us. The unspeakable joy of being in the presence of the Father. It is difficult to describe, isn't it, whenever you've experienced it. Third, notice another purpose for the tabernacle in chapter 39. In chapter 39 and verse 30, when he's talking about the priestly garments and then the priestly crown, how to make them, they made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and wrote on it an inscription like the engraving of a signet, Holiness to the Lord. And wherever the priest went with his crown, written on that crown was holiness to the Lord. When he was in the court, holiness to the Lord. When he was in the holy place, holiness to the Lord. When he was in the holy of holies, holiness to the Lord. When he was in the holiest, holiness to the Lord. I want to suggest to you that the third reason God wanted to dwell among his people in the tabernacle is so that he could have a representation of his holiness in the midst of their blackness and their darkness and their sin. That's what a Christian is in a dark world. That's what a God-fearing body of people are in a dark world. That's what a Bible-preaching church is in a dark world. It is as if we say we are representatives of God's holiness in a sinful world. A Christian marriage, a Christian home has across it written holiness to the Lord to keep a standard of holiness in an unholy world. The fourth reason God desired to meet among his people is in chapter 40. And it is in verse 34. Then the cloud, when the tabernacle was completed, the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God desired to have a place where he could manifest his presence, not only so he could dwell with his people, so he could meet with them and speak with them, so his holiness could be represented, but so that he could show his glory. God always had a place where his glory could be manifested. That is the purpose of the presence of God to show his glory. We catch just a little glimpse of his glory when we sing, Be exalted, O Lord, above the heavens. And the glory of God is manifested in our praise. We catch a little bit of the glory of the Lord when we sing that great hymn of the grace of God and our hearts pound with the lovely grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. For me he died, for me he lives, for me he reigns. And God fills our hearts with his glory. 
But there is one last reason why God chose to manifest his presence in the tabernacle. Turn over to 1 Kings chapter 1. 1 Kings. And do you remember when David had died and there was a very brief rebellion before Solomon was charged with the kingship? And Adonijah had a plot to be king. And when he heard that God was going to choose uh, Solomon, verse 50, 1 Kings 1.50. Now this is the tabernacle still. There's no temple built yet. Adonijah in chapter 1, verse 50 Adonijah was afraid of Solomon, so he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Now that was a drastic, drastic measure. To violate the place that belonged to the priest and to go into that holiest of all and grab hold of the horns of the altar. But it was known as a place of refuge, a last chance. No one would dare catch him and kill him in the presence of God. And that is why the psalmist says, Lord, thou hast been our refuge, our dwelling place. For God chooses to manifest himself in a place, in a person, so that he can dwell among his people, so that he can meet and speak with them to represent his holiness, to show his glory, and fifth, to provide a refuge. God is my refuge and my strength, said the psalmist. How many times have I come to Wits End Corner and I got on my knees. Did you ever hear the old timers say, take hold of the horns of the altar? I can hear my dad praying that right now. Take hold of the horns of the altar means lay hold of God as a place of refuge and don't let go. And how many times when your heart was broken and the pain was so deep you had no place to go but to the place of prayer with God alone and in his presence in prayer you as it were took hold of the horns of the altar and said God I will not let go of you until you give me an answer until you give me comfort until you meet this need and for us eternity in heaven is all of that no temple in heaven because God is there it's a place where he dwells with us and we dwell with him. And we meet with him and speak with him through all eternity. And there in glory, there won't be any need for a representation of his holiness. He is holy and we will be made holy so we can be in his presence. He will show us his glory and all heaven has golden streets in order to reflect the intense glory of God. And there will be our eternal refuge with God there, which is why Rick can sing, no tears, no sorrow in heaven. Everything that God ever demonstrated to the children of Israel in the manifestation of his presence will be ours in heaven for eternity on end, which is why Jesus said, surely I come quickly. I want you home with me. 
I want you to move on. We've seen now God manifested his presence in the garden. God manifested his presence in the tabernacle. But God manifested his presence in the temple. Second Chronicles. Move over to Second Chronicles. When the Bible tells of Solomon's completion and then Solomon's prayer, you see a fascinating thing. Second Chronicles. First, chapter 3, verse 1. Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Now, always remember, Jerusalem was built on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And though it has been defiled by Gentiles, there will be a rebuilt temple in the millennial reign, and the rabbis in Israel are already looking for a red heifer to slay on that hill so that it can be consecrated and purified so that the temple can be rebuilt on that hill. Chapter 5, verse 1. So all the work that Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. By the way, did you know that Gentiles built much of the temple of God? Isn't that great? I mean, that God was saying, where I live, I live for not only the Jews, but I live for the Gentiles. Where did he get his, his uh, cedars from? From Lebanon. Where did many of the skilled workmen come from? They were Sidonians. And they all worked. So the temple really was a place symbolic of heaven, which is for all men who come by faith in Christ. Chapter 5, verse 1. Solomon brought in all the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and all the furnishings, and he put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. Go to verse 13. Indeed, it came to pass when the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, by the way, anybody who thinks that instruments can't participate in praising God needs to read this. Amen. And by the way, choir, it says the choir and the instruments were one. Isn't that great? <laughs> I mean, they played in harmony and in unison and gave praise to God. Well, you didn't have to worry about the orchestra this morning. I think they all abdicated the throne. Where did they go? They, oh, they're on tour. That's right. I can't keep track of who's on tour. Everybody's on tour. In fact, it looks like we got some members on vacation tour too. But there in the temple... They lifted up their voice with trumpets. They were loud, cymbals. They were loud, instruments, and said, He is good, and His mercy endures forever. Now watch what happened. When they praised the Lord, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. What would you do if the glory of the Lord came down and filled this place? And I said, folks, I can't even read my Bible. I'll tell you what. If the glory of the Lord filled this house so I couldn't read my Bible, you don't need me and you don't need the Bible. Amen? <laughs> the glory of the Lord filled that house. God manifested his presence 
in the temple, in the temple. Chapter 7, verse 1. When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord saying, He is good. His mercy endures forever. There in the temple, God was pleased to manifest his sweet and precious presence. In the garden, in the tabernacle, in the temple, God manifested it. But there came a time when the temple had been prostituted, the temple had been altered. Go to John chapter 1. There's a fourth time God demonstrated his presence among men. When the Lord Jesus Christ came, the theology of John is unmistakable. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. So now the Bible says that for a brief spell, for a brief historical respite, God, who had manifested his presence in the garden, who had manifested his presence in the tabernacle, who had manifested his presence in the temple, now chose to manifest his presence in the person of his dear son, Jesus Christ the Lord, who tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. I wish that I could have seen the garden. I could wish that I could have seen the tabernacle. I could wish that I could have seen that tabernacle. I'd love to have been there the day that Abiram and Dathan and Korah told uh, Moses that he was no good. Who did he think he was trying to lead God's people? God didn't just speak to Moses. And God said to Moses, bring them out in front of their tents and I'll show them my glory. Do you remember what happened? The earth opened up and swallowed every, every one of them in rebellion against God. I want to tell you, it's a, I don't care whether you're a preacher or a, a wannabe, uh, you better not mess with the authority of God and the call and the anointed of God. Now, sometimes preachers get too big for their boots. Amen. And sometimes they need to be pared down. Amen? Boy, you're being quiet right now. I thought at least one or two of you would say amen. <laughs> I heard about the man who went to South Carolina hunting every year. And, and uh, he went down to a hunting preserve and he had a, a dog that he liked to use every year. And they called the dog Preacher. He absolutely the best hunting dog he'd ever had. And um, he'd go about every other year. One year he went down there and he said, I want Preacher. And one of the guides said, well, we don't have any preacher. He said, oh, yes, you do. He said, I've used him for many years, preacher. And uh, he's the greatest hunting dog in America. I want him. I don't even want to go hunting unless I can get my dog, preacher. Oh, said one of the guides. You know, we had a guy come down from New York last year, and he started calling that dog doctor, and you know that dog hadn't been any good ever since. <laughs> He hadn't been good for anything ever since. 
Sometimes God will take somebody down, but oh, I would love to have been at the tabernacle meeting, wouldn't you? When there, God just showed his glory and swallowed up the earth. I'd love to have seen the temple, maybe costing as much as $7 billion today. How many of you would love to have been? Wouldn't, wouldn't you have loved to have just seen the temple and its glory? But I'll tell you what, I would have loved to have just one glimpse of Jesus in the human flesh. That would have been great. Where God dwelt among us. The scripture declares when Stephen was brought before the council in Acts chapter 7, however, that even after our Lord Jesus Christ was gone, he made a very important point to the Jews when he was defending himself. The Bible says that in verse 44 of Acts 7, Stephen said, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not any longer dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? And here Stephen recognizes that every attempt to build a dwelling place for God was just an accession to man's uh, uh, finiteness that no tabernacle, no temple could do justice to the glory of God. But the scripture declares there's one other, one other attempt. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Paul uses a dramatic statement in the mind of the Jew when he says in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, verse 19, that now the God who dwelt in the temple, the God who was in Christ, the God who dwelt in the temple, the God who dwelt in the tabernacle, the God who dwelt in the garden, now dwells in us, the body of Christ. For he says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Today, God doesn't dwell in this building. There's nothing sacred about this carpet. There's nothing sacred about this wood. There's nothing sacred about this stone. There's nothing sacred about these pews. They wear away. Look at them. You can see them. They're getting nicked and knocked and edged. And some of you have stuck pen knives in there just to see if you really could cut that cloth. Others of you put spearmint gum on it. There's nothing sacred about this place. Except that this is where God's people meet. And it is in God's people that he dwells. God lives in us. We are today the temple of God. That is why your time with the Father you are, is so important. You are the place where God dwells. You are the place where God meets and speaks. You are the place that represents God's holiness. You are the place where God shows his glory. You are the place of refuge. God comes to you and God coming, dwelling in you is your refuge. 
Get with God. Hide out with him. Have a quiet time with him. Get on your knees before him. Know his presence. But there is coming a day when God will no longer make an attempt to meet with us. After centuries of meeting with us and trying to manifest his presence to us, we will come to him and we will be in his presence. And he who sought to make his presence known to us will now make us known to his presence in heaven. And there's no tabernacle in glory. And there's no temple in heaven. And there's no first Baptist church of glory. And there's no second Presbyterian of the Hallelujah Lane. God himself is the temple therein. And there he meets all the criteria there in heaven where there is no temple for God himself and the Lamb are there. We dwell with him. We meet face to face with him. There we are in the presence of his holiness. There we see his glory manifested day and night where there's no need for any light. And there is our eternal refuge in heaven. I don't know about you, but the more I think about it, the more I want to go. I'm not going to hurry it along. I'm not going to be anxious. But in Hebrews chapter 11, the Bible teaches us that one of the best ways to deal with suffering, one of the best ways to deal with adversity is to keep our eyes on eternity. Listen to what he said about Abraham. These all, these heroes, verse 13, died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. My homeland is glory. Truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. You can go back if you want. But now, he said, they desire a better that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. God will never be embarrassed in heaven. He won't have to say, Rick, I'm so sorry. I promised you streets of gold and it's tin. God is not ashamed to be called our God. There's nothing he's promised that won't be a reality in glory. It'll be everything that he's written and more. And he's not ashamed. And the way to deal with the passing things of this earth, the transitoriness of life, the adversities, the affliction, the suffering, is to keep your eye on glory. You're a stranger. You're a pilgrim passing through. Vance Abner said when he was just a little boy before he was called to preach at the age of 12. Can you imagine a 12-year-old evangelist? You know, back in the 50s when I was a, a, a high schooler, that was the rage of the age. How many of you remember all those boy evangelists went around the country? I can remember them. We had a six-year-old boy evangelist came through our town, preached in a tent meeting. Imagine giving a love offering to a six-year-old boy. Amen. That's faith, isn't it? And, uh, and yet Van Savner said just before he was called to preach, one night out there in the foothills of the mountains of just above, uh, uh, just above Hickory at Vail. You ever been to Vail, North Carolina? 
He said one night he asked his parents if he could go to a church meeting. They were having a revival. They didn't have any electricity, no flashlights. His mama said he could go. He was just home before dark. The meeting went on and the preacher preached and preached. And he got worried and started to go. Started to leave so that he could get home before dark. Because that's where he wanted to be, was home. Didn't want to be lost in the woods going back home. Fella came out, had a pitch pot. Took him a little stick, dipped it in the pitch pot and lit the pitch and said, now carry this and you'll see your way home and I believe you'll be home before dark. But just in case, here's the light. It'll see you all the way home. You know, as I come to the end of the book of Revelation, I've got the pitch of the Word of God, the light of truth. I've got the body of Christ to encourage me, and I want to go home. And when the world is dark and the heavens and earth have been destroyed by fire, I'm going home. And God's provided sufficient so you and I can make it home. Amen? We're going to make it home. We're going to make it home. And every Christian in here ought to get his eyes on glory. Take your eyes off earthly things. Get your eyes on glory. Home. Heaven is your home. It's God's dwelling place. And we'll be with him and meet with him and speak with him. And there he'll show us his glory and his holiness. And it'll be our eternal refuge. Amen. And amen.